following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. That was Bella Hardy with Herring Girl, a song whose theme has relevancy for today's show regarding the importance of advocacy and social justice, both in the workplace and within our communities. As a way of introducing today's show, I would love to read you a few lines from something that was written in 2013, which are just as relevant today, perhaps even more so, as we navigate our current global crisis. Homeless kids without a smidgen need more than a soup kitchen, and a lonely older generation have earned our patient consideration. And refugees without a nation deserve inclusion, not derision. Single parents on a paltry pension should not have to suffer deprivation. Folks without sight or ambulation, we consult and listen to them. They'll exceed what anyone expected with a little augmentation. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history requires honest recognition, not just knee-jerk reaction and unilateral intervention. Reconciliation means action with authentic self-determination. For the poor are always with us, perhaps, but often hidden, and we are always with them. That's our purpose and our vision, to advocate with courage backed by research and compassion. Fifty years of conviction, hard-won progress and evolution. That was the Jubilee poem by Canberra writer Hal Judge, and it was written for Atcos's 50th birthday in 2013. At COS, the ACT Council of Social Service advocates for social justice in the ACT and represents not-for-profit community organisations. It envisions a Canberra that is a just, safe, sustainable community in which everyone has the opportunity for self-determination and a fair share of resources and services. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us live in studio Dr Emma Campbell, who is the new CEO of At COS. So welcome to the show, Emma. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. So, um, Emma, you have a really fascinating bio as I was doing a little bit of research for the show. I'm sure you've come, um, I should say, from somewhere else in the north all the way to north Canberra. So it's been quite a journey for you. That's right. So I was born in the northeast of England, Newcastle. Uh, My Mum is from the UK, but my dad is actually from Australia. So he's from country New South Wales, Leeton, Tamora Way, where we still have family. Um, so I've had a long connection with Australia uh, since, I was, since I was born. And um, I came finally to Australia uh, more permanently in 2008 to do my PhD at ANU. I wanted to... I guess do something significant in my life in Australia, but Canberra uh, is has become my home um, since 2008, and I now can't imagine being anywhere else. Well, the cold should be familiar to you then. <laughs> the cold is very familiar. It doesn't it doesn't mean I like it, but uh, yes. That's wonderful. So um, on your journey, your very journey, so you've had a very extensive um, international career as well. You used to work for Médecins Sans Frontières, I believe. That's right. I did three missions with uh, MSF, 
uh, in Swaziland. Uh, I worked on a mission that covered Lebanon, Turkey and Syria. Uh, and I also worked in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis, where I was the administrator of uh, an Ebola hospital. Oh my goodness! A lot of relevancy to what's going on now. Then. That, that's right. There, ha- there are a lot of a lot of learnings, particularly around trust in the community, um, and how all the different services must link together and talk to each other uh, in order to meet what is a, a very complex challenge. It's not just about health. It's about the economic implications. It's about education. Um, it's about uh, the, dealing with the consequences that come from the health crisis as mm-hmm. well as the health crisis itself. Mm-hmm. And did you find it was very difficult um, to, to gain that trust when you were working there? Because there's, there's a big thing that's happening now. There's a lot of information out there. People aren't mm-hmm. sure what to believe and there's a lot of mistrust about what they're being told. That. Yes. I mean, in all of the different contexts that MSF work in, um, trust, building trust with the communities is very important, particularly when you're dealing with uh, a disease that perhaps is not familiar to the community um, and often appears to the local community as arriving with the overseas or foreign aid workers that that um, come to address the issue. Um, in in most cases, there's a very strong um, and effective local um, national workforce mm-hmm. that give excellent advice and support around how you build trust in the community, how you share messages, um, uh, how messages are, are able to reach individuals that need to be reached but might be hard to to communicate with so uh, it's really important in those circumstances to understand the community that you're working in and and to take advice and listen to those who understand the community and that's the same in the ACT as well it's very important for our healthcare providers for our government to listen to members of of ACOS and other representatives of the community um, if they want to deliver effective messages and services that meet the needs of particularly those who are very vulnerable. Yes, and that's why we have community radio, because it gives people a voice who often um, don't get to be heard publicly, or perhaps, you know, they're wanting to hear an alternative version of something that um, maybe the mainstream media hasn't picked up on. So That's that's right, and and I know that we have been engaging with Mm -hmm. 2XX, particularly some of the services that talk to uh, culturally and linguistically diverse Mm. Canberrans. Um, But uh, we see community radio as a very important means um, to get messages out and also to Mm. hear what's important to many people in the ACT. Mm. And one of the reasons, Emma, that I was so excited to have you on the show is you're a bit passionate about radio yourself. I am... um, very passionate about radio so I didn't have a television until I was pretty old uh, in my home growing up Uh, I grew up with uh, particularly spoken word radio Mm -hmm. so if people are familiar with the BBC with Radio 4 which is news and current affairs Mm -hmm. but it also has arts music Um, even though I've done a PhD I'm not a great reader Mm -hmm. 
so a lot of my information still comes through listening um, to either the radio uh, or through podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, I'm addicted to a podcast called In Our Time, which is on, on the BBC. <laughs> and it's a, a great show that covers everything from philosophy to culture to history um, and brings on academics to talk about particular subjects. And, and I, I've learned things that I would probably not read about but I, I find it a great way to collect knowledge. Um, and you can knit or sew or do a bit of cooking at the same time as well. That's the best thing about auditory, right? You don't, right. You don't need to be focused visually on it. That's right. So, uh, no, radio is a, a part of my life. And there's also another show called Desert Island Discs in, mm. the, in the UK. And you're allowed... It, it imagines that you're stuck on a desert island with... Uh, and you pick your favourite songs that you take with you and you're allowed one luxury. And my luxury would have to be um, either, uh, either a, ra well, a radio to, <laughs> to listen to what's going mm -hmm. on because the idea of sitting in silence mm -hmm. without something to keep me company terrifies well, me. Well, then you have to listen to yourself, right? You haven't listened to your own well, head. <laughs> yeah, perhaps that's telling a bit of a story yeah. about what's uh, going on in my own yeah. head. But, um, but, but yes, I, and I, I like that constant stimulation and, and ideas. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you've agreed to join us. Um, I also was reading your bio there that um, you're multilingual and you've got a couple of languages that probably aren't as um, commonly found in Canberra, or maybe now more so, but um, you speak Chinese and I'm guessing that's Mandarin? Yeah, so I can speak a little bit of Chinese and I can speak a little bit of Korean. Oh, wonderful. I only speak Cantonese, a small okay. amount of Cantonese, so I, I'm not very good with the Mandarin. Yeah. I have a bit of bit of Cantonese. So I lived in Hong Kong. Oh, right. That's what I also lived in Hong Kong, yeah. so that's where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. I worked on uh, worked for Cathay Pacific, which uh, whose first language, <laughs> an airline from Hong Kong, is <laughs> Cantonese. So I know a few bad words <laughs> in Cantonese. <laughs> But um, it, it's an, it is a language yeah. I would I would like to yeah. improve. And I have found that um, just more so now with um, being such global community, we're actually getting a lot more Mandarin speakers. It used to be the dominant language um, coming out of Hong Kong um, was Cantonese, but now there's a lot more movement and you're hearing a lot more Mandarin speakers. So I'm, I'm guessing that's a language that you would be using more in your work uh, rather than Cantonese? Or Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of people... Um, mm from mainland China now living mm -hmm. in, in Australia. So mm -hmm. um, I think Mandarin is an increasingly important language um, if you're representing the community. Mm -hmm. But also China is so important to Australia as a, as a customer, mm -hmm. as, a, as a partner. Um, like any other country that I guess there are challenges in our international relationship, but there's lots of wonderful things about the relationship between mm -hmm. Australia and China. And I think language is a really important way to build trust and really engage with a culture. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's, it's actually a, a great country to live mm -hmm. in, Australia, mm -hmm. um, and speak Mandarin mm -hmm. because of those important ties between mm -hmm. um, Australia and China. Mm, that's wonderful. And I actually lived away from Australia for 25 years, and I only came back two years ago. So I missed a lot of key events that was happening. And I realised we also have an ex-Prime Minister who spoke Mandarin. Is that correct? Was that Kevin Rudd? Yeah, I understand Kevin Rudd's Mandarin yeah. is 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 pretty good. Um, yeah. uh, you, you see it, I mean, we expect people to mm -hmm. speak English. 
um, and you see many prime ministers or you know foreign leaders speaking English, and you see the power of that mm-hmm. to communicate with the English-speaking world, mm-hmm. which still is very important mm-hmm. um, and 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 dominant in some areas. So I think if we reflect on that, if we can speak in the language of our partners mm. how powerful that can be mm-hmm. to build trust and understanding and and we definitely need to see more of that mm-hmm. and that's so much of the work that you're doing too is finding common ground you know to when you're when you're trying to support and help and advocate or or create policy and um you know work with some of the vulnerable communities or vulnerable groups that that's something that's very important and you said in like the medicine sans frontier is creating trust and maybe showing that um desire to uh communicate in the mother language of the community that you're working with that's a tremendous um show of you know desire for trust and and to build connection Look, I, I think in, in every career, even in my commercial career, where you're dealing with customers, um, working for mm-hmm. MSF, doing research for my mm-hmm. PhD mm-hmm. and now this work, it is about communicating, um, being transparent and being open. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, and this sounds a bit trite, but it's about listening mm-hmm. and being open to new ideas, to having your ideas challenged, to... Um, learning about the challenges that other people face, understanding what people are afraid of, um, which sometimes helps you to perhaps address those those fears when we want to create change or mm-hmm. progress. Um, and I think the skills that I've developed, whether it's listening to a cust- an angry customer at mm-hmm. Cathay or mm-hmm. listening to our national staff at MSF to improve our work um, or listening to our, our, our patients and, mm. and their needs or listening mm. to my research targets in my PhD um, helps me in my work at, mm. at ACOS. Mm. And I was just thinking to you when you mentioned you work for CAFE, I think airline employees don't get enough credit because I think they need a psychology degree sometimes just to work in that field to deal with all of the daily challenges because you get people in every state, you know, with travellers, you know, they're under stress or there's, something's happened or there's, um, you know, unexpected delays and you're going to get the people under stress uh, maybe out of their you know, their normal elements out of the country that they're familiar with, maybe not even having the language that they're familiar with. So um, being able to read people and understand people and have that empathy to connect with them and that true desire to help. That, that's right. Yeah. Every day you are dealing with a conflict resolution mm-hmm. <laughs> situation on an airline, mm-hmm. um, but involving people of very different cultures mm. Um, with different problems and issues and levels of stress. Um, And uh, I I do think many of the skills that I've brought with me to the community sector, um, I was able to develop um, in that very complex environment of an airline. And the airline job was was really wonderful because I I lived in, um, I got to live in Hong Kong, in Korea, I ran cafe in northern India for two years. Um, I lived in Korea for a little while. So um, it, it was an, also an amazing mm. opportunity to 
operate and work with people mm. in different cultures and, and contexts. Mm. And I have to say, Cafe is probably my favourite airline to fly with. Um, I've flown it a few times and I've always found that to have stellar service. And, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it, it's strange. I, I'm still very loyal <laughs> to Cafe Pacific and, and I think it's a very... Uh, very difficult time mm. for the airline mm. industry. Um, look, there are issues around mm. the environmental challenges mm. that we have to deal with, mm. with increased tra travel mm -hmm. and so on. Um, but uh, the connections that the airline industry provides us with, um, for me, mm -hmm. to my family mm -hmm. and my, my friends who live mm -hmm. overseas, is incredibly important. And it mm. employs many people who mm. I think at the moment um, must be feeling incredibly insecure and nervous mm. about their mm. their future um so i think in the context of covid19 mm. and having worked for cathay during mm. sars mm. as an example um my heart is with many people in that in that sector who um have you know dedicated their life to that career mm. and, and don't know what the future holds mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you've been here since 2008 um what led you to wanting to connect with atcos and working with atcos with are you working for one of atcos's partners before or one of their um colleagues so since i was young i've always been very interested in social justice mm. um my father was very active in the local community he was he worked at, um, at Newcastle University, but he was very active in the union. He was a volunteer at a number of schools as a school governor. Mm. My mum and dad um, also fostered and provided respite care for mm. children when I was, was growing mm. up. So, um, and my mum's a, a carer <laughs> for her brother also. So I, I was you know, aware of many of the issues that we now work on at ACOS from mm. quite an early age. And also aware, I think, of how lucky I was because mm. of my exposure to mm. some of the issues that mum and dad um, enabled mm. me to come into contact mm. with. Um, so that, that's been a, a long-term interest. Um, but particularly ACOS, my interest in ACOS came because of my connection with ACOS. So ACOS is the mm. Australian... Mm -hmm. Council of Social Service mm -hmm. run, our CEO is Cassandra Goldie, who's uh, a really amazing advocate mm -hmm. and person. And I was previously CEO of the Federation of Ethnic Communities mm -hmm. Councils of Australia, which is the peak body representing mm -hmm. uh, Australians of mm -hmm. migrant and refugee background. And we did a lot of work with ACOS, um, particularly around access to uh, fair access for migrants and refugees to social security payments and, and housing and so on. Um, and so that would mean a lot of advocacy work? It was all, yeah, yeah. Very, a lot of advocacy work. Um, at FECA around, uh, at that time, there were changes being proposed to the citizenship law that would have made it much mm -hmm. harder for mm -hmm. migrants to Australia to um, achieve Australian citizenship, mm -hmm. including much higher requirements mm -hmm. around English language. So we were mm -hmm. passionately against mm -hmm. that because there's no evidence mm -hmm. that that would make Australia a better place mm -hmm. and um, uh, your, all of the evidence mm -hmm. shows the earlier that you welcome people into the Australian community 
um, uh, the more cohesive and successful society we can make. Mm -hmm. and, and, and actually, that's why Australia has been such a successful mm -hmm. multicultural society, because we've just welcomed people early as... Um, as Australian citizens. Mm. Uh, the, the, yeah. the place that I lived for 25 years when I was away was Canada, and I am also a citizen of Canada. And one of the things I found so bizarre was that um, it's a bilingual country, so it's French and English, and they wanted you as part of the citizenship to speak French. And I was living on the West Coast, and nobody speaks French on the West Coast. Actually, everybody speaks the second language, dominant language, would probably be Mandarin, Mandarin and, yep. and Punjabi. Yes. So I always found that sort of an odd thing, and that, that a lot of immigrants who were coming, that were already English was their second language, being expected to also um, have some knowledge of French. Yes. Um, we have a very strong Persian community on the West Coast, and their second language is French, um, I believe. Um, in Iran, so yep. that there were a lot of French speakers within the Persian community, but for everybody else, it was a bit of a struggle. And I think they have now um, dropped some of the um, the restrictions around that. But yes, as you said, the assimilation into community is probably the most vital and important thing for um, a new resident to the country. You know, to have that welcoming feeling of being connected and um, you know just being encouraged to become part of the community. Yes, yeah. I mean, of course, I think Fekka mm. was was very keen on ways that we could support people to learn English. Mm -hmm. If you speak <laughs> English, it makes life easier <laughs> in Australia. There's no question about that. But um, punitive measures <laughs> do not help people to learn a language. Um, and for some people, learning a language, a second language, is incredibly difficult, but particularly those who are older um, or um, may not have high levels of literacy mm -hmm. even in their mm -hmm. their own first first language, um, and it, it as generations of migrants to Australia have shown, particularly some of those from Europe, having English as a first language or speaking English does not determine um, your success mm -hmm. as a migrant or the contribution that you and your your family mm -hmm. make. Um, so we felt very strongly about that, mm -hmm. and and um, were successful working with many partners to prevent that legislation from coming into into law so we were very mm. proud of that so mm. I, I worked with with ACOS a lot on on issues where we crossed over our interests and um, uh, I left FECA and mm -hmm. handed over to another great CEO Mohammed Al Kafaji mm -hmm. who I'm really happy to uh, for him to take over the reins at, at FECA and he's doing a wonderful job there and the the role mm. at ACOS um, came up and um, it just felt right for me. I, I love Canberra. I'm very passionate about all of the issues that ACOS work on um, and it's proven to be the right choice. <laughs> we actually had um, hoped to get uh, ACOS on the show a little while back during the robo-debt crisis. Um, they were so busy in the swamp, unfortunately, they couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, come on as a guest. But we did have some conversations around what they were doing to try and end um, this terrible robo-debt, which has been successful. Has, has um, ACOS had some involvement in that as well? So ACOS has led a lot of that work mm -hmm. because it is... Um, done at the federal mm -hmm. level but I know that uh, it's a lot of the work mm -hmm. was prior to my joining um, mm -hmm. at COS so I can't claim credit for it but I know that my colleagues mm -hmm. um, including Craig Wallace <laughs> who's our head of policy there and quite well known in the Canberra community mm -hmm. did a lot of work to collect the experiences and the stories from people mm -hmm. in Canberra who had faced um, 
the outcomes of robo-debt, demands for uh, repayment of monies and so on, often incorrectly. Mm. Uh, And I think it's those lived experience stories, the real stories of people that are very powerful in advocacy and in changing the minds of politicians Mm. um, and also helped contribute to some of the legal actions that took place that also... Mm. Um, led to the government having to reverse its decision. Mm. So we all, it's about working together and supporting ACOS Mm. um, with the stories from the ground in Canberra. Mm -hmm. Now, it was one of the things I was very excited about, and I know you've got some other campaigns going on we'll touch on later, which are about some things that are extremely relevant that are going to be taking place this week and next week um, with the Morrison government. Um, So just touching back on social justice, I mean, by historical standards, it's it's a fairly modern concept. You know, it's really... Um, I think it was touched upon in in ancient times, but it's probably really only been something in um, our language really from the 20th century. There was some work with Thomas Paine in the 1700s, but more um, recently I think it's something that has been embraced, maybe post-Industrial Revolution, you know, with some of the challenges that were happening around that time. So um, the basic principles of social justice that um, ATCOS works with, one of them is um, like access access to goods and services for people that may be denied. What sort of things does that cost do to, to help your clients with that? Yeah, look, I mean, perhaps the concept of social mm. social justice mm. is, is very much linked to the structures that we have mm-hmm. built more recently in modern times. Mm. But a lot of it is the fundamental principle of fairness mm. and being kind to other people and um, doing to others what you would have done to yourself. So I think Mm. some of the principles of of social justice have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, We just think that no matter your background, Mm. you should have a fair chance. what does that mean? Um, I think that some of the key issues to having a fair chance are um, that children should not be living in poverty in a country like Australia. I think it was the first line of the, the poem that I read from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I hadn't heard that poem. Oh, yeah. And as you were reading it, I was, I was like, that describes ATCOS. And then you explained <laughs> it had been written for ATCOS. Yeah. So I'm going to look it up when yeah. I, I, I go back to the office. But, granted, it was seven years before your that's, tenure. There, that's so, right. Yeah. But um, I, I, I was, uh, it, it really s- struck me. Mm. And of course, it was because <laughs> it was written for ATCOS. So I will look it up. Um, but mm. I, I think that... Well, the basic mm. principles are uh, start with children. Mm. Um, children should not be living in poverty. The two main drivers of poverty are income and the cost of housing. Mm. So uh, if you are facing disadvantage or lose your job or face challenges such as having to, to manage as a single parent, um, you should have enough income and enough support to be able to feed your children, keep them warm, mm pay for medical care, um, buy them decent clothes uh, and, frankly, a treat (laughs) every now and then. Um, And you should be able to uh, house yourself and your family uh, in a way that 
provides safety and mm. comfort and mm. dignity. Mm. And unfortunately in Canberra, um, because of both challenges around income levels, mm. particularly for those on welfare, or mm. receiving welfare from the Commonwealth Government, and because of the very, very high cost of housing mm-hmm. in the ACT, mm-hmm. especially rental mm-hmm. properties, um, we are seeing uh, too many people in the ACT living in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the basis, I think, mm-hmm. for our work. People should not be living in poverty. And, and over 8% of Canberrans mm-hmm. are living in poverty. Mm-hmm. And that's a very high percentage that's of people. A, yeah. That's a very high percentage mm-hmm. of people for, for, for a country like Australia and particularly a, mm-hmm. a city mm-hmm. like Canberra. Mm-hmm. That's around 30,000 people mm-hmm. in Canberra are living below the poverty mm-hmm. line. Um, and that's what motivates myself every day. Mm-hmm. Other things that are very important, of course, are access to health. Mm-hmm. And there are other barriers to health outside of income, for example. So it might be transport. Mm-hmm. For migrant Australians, mm-hmm. it might be language. Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, Aboriginal and or Torres Strait, mm-hmm. Torres Strait Islander um, people, it may be... Um, other structural barriers around cultural appropriateness and trust, mm. access. So some of the things you medicine, medicine sans frontier, you mentioned that were some of the issues there are just as relevant. A- abs- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and of course, cost of healthcare mm-hmm. because healthcare is very expensive mm-hmm. in Australia, mm-hmm. um, and and health is so critical mm-hmm. to social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look at every aspect of people's lives in Canberra that we think impact on whether or not there are fair mm-hmm. fair outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that means there's a lot to cover. <laughs> we cover everything from disability to justice to education to drug and alcohol issues. Um, but uh, to achieve social justice, we need to look at all of these um, complex interactions of challenges and barriers um, that prevent us from having a fair and just society mm-hmm. in what should be one because we have the resources, the money and the intelligence to achieve it. Yes, and as you've said, we've got the resources, the money and the intelligence. So you have to ask yourself the question, why aren't we creating it? There's a, um, a journalist and psychologist called Lynn McTaggart who wrote a book called The Field. and um, Her theory was that all healthy functioning human beings are actually hardwired to care to share and to be fair that's what human beings intrinsically want to do and yet so many situations in the world we're not doing that and you know here you're talking about this yourself and your organization has such a strong desire to see these supports in place and and yet there's the status the certain aspects of the status quo that don't want things to change so this is probably what you're up against all the time right is maybe trying to not only convince but to um, demonstrate the viability of the change that it's actually more sustainable to have people thriving than in survival yeah that it's an inter- that's an interesting perspective and and as individuals I think most people I meet are generally kind mm and do nice things for others Mm. and see the benefit in doing that. But somehow when we think of that in a structural way, be it through (laughs) our welfare system or increasing social or public housing, Mm. um, those attitudes are not transferred. (laughs) Um, And how 
how we pers- and the challenge for ACOS is is persuading people to to um, repeat the actions that they do probably personally for their mm-hmm. friends and their family and often for strangers mm-hmm. um, in their attitudes to structural change mm-hmm. to investment in health to paying mm-hmm. more tax. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if you earn more, mm-hmm. uh, to deliver services who that are uh, for those who who you know, face a bit more challenge mm-hmm. or disadvantage, mm-hmm. and and that's our challenge. Mm-hmm. And often when I'm I'm reading comments on articles that have been posted up by various organisations, and, and the unions have been quite vocal lately, of course, with lots of the things that are happening. Um, and you see people in the comments talking about this sense of um, maybe it's what I like to call fear of missing out, that someone else is getting a benefit that they're not. Um, so that even though in principle they believe in what's being suggested and advocating for that, but because it doesn't relate to them directly, it's relating to another group um, that they perceive maybe as not having um, worked hard enough or not having earned something, um, that there's a bit more resistance to that. So, you know, as someone who's um, a generally very, very compassionate, empathic person is going to say, oh, no, you know, I don't want to raise the rate. I don't want to give people on welfare more money because they're not going to go and look for jobs. And then I've actually spent some time in Sweden and they have a very different approach to things in, in Scandinavia and they really believe in their high taxes in paying high taxes so that everybody can have a higher quality of life. They don't mind that their taxes are going to social services. They don't mind that their taxes are helping people who are unemployed or have mental health because they see that as benefiting the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, some of those challenges are related to inequality mm-hmm. so um so the the massive gap between those who are the poorest mm-hmm. and those who are the richest and the people in the middle and many of us in the middle do not consider ourselves to be very rich mm-hmm. because we see these extreme mm-hmm. levels of inequality but actually in reality mm-hmm. um we we are incredibly <laughs> comfortable and lucky mm-hmm. um we may spend a lot of mm-hmm. our money but I think there is space for many of us in the higher income levels to share a little bit more of that um, with others. Mm. And ultimately, that makes us um, all mm-hmm. safer and happier and more mm-hmm. comfortable. Mm. But I, I, I think the large inequality um, mm. that exists does create insecurity and fear we don't um, have confidence in our public services that they will look after us if something goes wrong. And I think that means that those of us who perhaps have a, do have some space to perhaps mm. pay a little more have some, fe- have, have some fear um, about what the future holds. Mm. And, and um, again, that isn't, that's another challenge for, for ACOS um, because we need to all contribute if we want to make a more fair and equal society. And this is something that's really come up during the COVID pandemic is because, you know, you've got a situation that affects, you know, potentially could affect every individual on the planet. Um, Whereas before, you know, often situations were localised, you know, to a particular country or a particular area, a particular demographic. And um, beginning of the year, we had some of the bushfire affected communities on the show. And they told us a very sad story that, you know, during the um, immediately post bushfire 
um, period, there was a lot of generous donations, a lot of people, you know, really wanting to help. And they'd never seen such generosity coming from Canberra. The joke is on the South Coast that they don't like Canberra number plates. And Canberra was one of the most generous communities in, in helping the bushfire victims with resources and donations. And they said when COVID hit, all the donations dried up within three days. Like These were communities that didn't have drinking water and people had been sending flats of bottled water down for them and suddenly there were no bottled, flats of bottled water showing up in the community. People had no drinking water. And it was so hard for them to go from this generosity to suddenly why there was nothing. And when they talked to people is that the people said, well, we might need the flats of bottled water, you know, in in Canberra, well, we've got a tap we can turn on and water flows. So there was that sense of um, suddenly, as you said, if people believe that it's going to personally affect them in a negative way, there was that fear of maybe being as generous or being as allowing and not wanting to um, be vulnerable themselves and be at risk. That, that, that's right. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think, and perhaps not surprisingly, mm-hmm. given the particular challenges that Canberra has faced, mm-hmm. bushfire, hail, and now COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of fear uh, about the future and mm-hmm. a sense of insecurity and people wanting to prepare and support their children, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. to get into the housing market <laughs> and, and so on. Um, and I, I think we we need to think about how we how we change that Mm -hmm. but even before COVID-19 I I think that was the case also Mm -hmm. Um, and really uh, I'm not I'm not sure how we do that (laughs) Um, but we we do need a society where we we look out for each other Mm -hmm. people feel confident that Mm -hmm. if they hit hard times um that there's something or someone there to support them and they won't find themselves living in poverty which frankly before the job seeker was doubled people did find themselves Mm -hmm. living in poverty if they if they Mm -hmm. lost um lost their their job and didn't have savings to fall back on Um, and, and that's really not the kind of society I think we want to be living in. No. And it benefits nobody because ultimately those people can't contribute to the economy either, right? They're not able to make purchases. They're not able um, to participate actively in things because they're at a very base survival level. That, that's right. Mm-hmm. So we've seen since JobSeeker has been um, doubled, uh, ACOS did a, a survey of around a 1,000 people who had previously been on the $40 a day level and were now Mm. receiving the supplement. And rather ironically, given Mm. that we're in this very challenging Mm -hmm. time, their lives had improved markedly. Mm. Um, They were able to get on top of their debts. Mm. They were able to pay their utilities bills. Mm. They were able to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. They were able to have some of their healthcare needs met. They were able to replace, you know, a fridge or a heater or an air conditioning unit that had been broken or have it repaired. Um, able to perhaps buy some new clothes for their kids or for themselves for their job interviews. Some were also looking mm-hmm. to save for some future uh, education opportunities. Mm-hmm. So not only were you helping to make people more, or are, you are helping mm-hmm. people to become more job ready 
they're also spending the money and putting it straight into the economy. So we know that when you give money to people on lower incomes, they spend it. Yeah, and they don't not on frivolous things, on things they need, but they spend it. So by giving um, a decent level of welfare to uh, people who lose their jobs, uh, it not only helps them to remain ready for the next job that might come along, it also supports our economy. Mm. And that's why we have strange bedfellows in the Australian Industry Group, <laughs> the Retailers Association, Deloitte Access Economics. Um, we had uh, the um, other major business organisations coming out in support of ACOS's position to raise, or raise the rate permanently um, for job seeker youth allowance and other um, welfare supports uh, because it makes both moral and economic sense. Yes. There was um, a very powerful photo I saw online last night and it was a person who's been receiving um, job seeker for some time, both pre-COVID and then post-COVID with the supplement. Well, I shouldn't say we're not post-COVID yet, but post-raising, yes. yeah. the, um, adding the supplement. And it was a picture of what the food looked like, what that person could purchase um, prior to the supplement and then what they were able to purchase with the supplement. And we're talking very basic food. We're not talking extravagances. We're talking, you know, like a bag of potatoes. And potatoes aren't as cheap as you think they would be. But, um, you know, it was just phenomenal. This person was actually able to have a balanced meal. They weren't eating tinned beans. Yeah. Um, It's very, very simple things that have improved the quality of life tremendously. That's right. And Mm. improve health and... improve your mental health as well as your physical health Mm. um and yeah look a lot of people who Mm. receive job seeker will also have challenges around transportation Mm. right so they can't also shop Mm. sometimes where things Mm -hmm. are the cheapest but having a decent um amount of money to to rely on um makes just a tremendous change Mm -hmm. to what you can do to keep yourself mm. um, mentally healthy, physically healthy, um, and also to, to look after your kids. Because mm. many people on JobSeeker um, are parents mm. also, or carers mm. for um, elderly um, parents or partners. And we know at the moment, I mean, in Australia, there are, for every job, seek, uh, sorry, for every job there are 13 mm-hmm. people looking. Yeah. Right? In the ACT, it, it's slightly better. But, um, that would be our public service probably takes up a lot that, of that. That's right. Yeah. So um, we, but we have um, at least four people for every job that is available. Um, so uh, there's a long way to go mm-hmm. before we have enough jobs uh, to enable everyone to mm-hmm. uh, have that kind mm-hmm. of income and support because of employment. And mm-hmm. until we do. We need to make sure that mm-hmm. we have a proper safety mm-hmm. net. And I think it was, it might have been Anglicare, I might be wrong there, but um, in beginning of the year did a survey about affordable housing and especially in the ACT, apparently there was zero properties that were affordable for somebody that was on JobSeeker. That's right. Mm-hmm. So Anglicare do this uh, wonderful mm-hmm. survey every year around the state of mm-hmm. housing in mm-hmm. the ACT. Um, so before, mm-hmm. yeah, the 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 increase and not a single um, appropriate (laughs) private rental apartment was uh, affordable for someone on JobSeeker. But it was barely 2% (laughs) of 
properties available even after Mm -hmm. the increase Mm -hmm. Um, and still no affordable and appropriate properties for people on the age pension Mm. uh, rental properties Mm. Um, and even a a, a parent who is um, in full-time paid Mm. work but maybe Mm. uh, with two children and a partner who is the carer Mm. there are no affordable appropriate Mm -hmm. rental properties Mm -hmm. Um, so we have a real We've talked about the two main drivers of poverty being income and housing. We also have a real challenge with housing in the ACT. Um, the ACT is the most expensive place in the whole of Australia to rent an apartment. I think the second most expensive place to rent a house. Um, we do not have enough uh, community and public housing. Um, and when we are advocating to the various political parties in our in our um, approach to the ACT election on October 17th, um, ensuring that there is sufficient housing so mm. that people in Canberra can afford to live safely um, and with dignity and in comfort is going to be one of our uh, mm. most important election calls. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, like we've got stats in front of us, but a lot of people aren't in the stats because they're they're not being counted. You know, they're in situations where maybe they're not stepping forward and they're not putting themselves on a wait list or they're not, you know, signing up for some sort of support. So there's, a, there's also additional numbers that aren't being officially recorded. So I've got stats here in front of me that say that as of the 1st of June, there were 2,478 people on the wait list for public housing. I mean, that's a phenomenal amount of people who don't have adequate or safe shelter. And the average waiting time for to receive standard housing, so if you've not considered an emergency um, case where you need emergency housing, standard housing wait is um, 1,247 days, which is about three and a half years. So somebody who's living in desperate straits can't wait three and a half years for that kind of security you know there um you know there was a a show that was quite popular here called um oh god i was i don't want to say it because it was released under another name um anyway it was about a, a indigenous senator um in canberra and there was a scene where she's taking one of her assistants um to try and find a missing uh, aboriginal teenager and they're asking all of the people living in their cars parked under the bridges and a lot of those people were single mums with babies and even though that's a fictional tv show that's a very real situation that people are faced with you know you've got someone who even if they potentially had enough money for housing they're competing with people that look like far more attractive tenants you know people who have uh, really good um and they can do a financial check and they, they've never defaulted on a payment and they've maybe got a partner, so there's two incomes. Um, so that person who's, who's struggling to get affordable housing, even if they can just make it financially to, to pay that rent, um, is probably up against 30, 40 people who are better candidates for that one place, you know, who are on paper better candidates. That, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and so it's not just about mm-hmm. how much you can afford when you have such mm-hmm. a competitive... Um, Mm -hmm. competitive rental environment Mm -hmm. um, the private rental property Mm. uh, private rental market Mm. is very very difficult for people who might Mm. have a challenging uh, record Mm. around uh, debts Mm. or employment which many people Mm -hmm. do Mm -hmm. because as we know Mm. there are four people for every job in the ACT Mm. or if you have children or if you have pets Mm. um, and pets are very important mm. to many people, particularly those who've experienced 
trauma or difficulty mm-hmm. in, in, or loneliness their, in their or, lives yeah. or loneliness. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the yeah. Anglicare survey, which is, is, is pretty shocking as it is, mm-hmm. is only looking at the financial mm-hmm. barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, as you've described mm-hmm. there, there are many other barriers mm-hmm. as well. Um, and that's why a very strong uh, social housing program, which includes both public housing and community housing, is really important. Um, it's not easy. Housing is complex and expensive. Um, but the great opportunity with community housing is that you can also attract money from both the private sector and also from the Commonwealth mm-hmm. government. So we really want and we have some excellent community housing providers in the ACT. So we're really hoping that whoever is elected into uh, into power in the next election will work mm-hmm. with us and with Shelter ACT, mm-hmm. another great organisation, mm-hmm. to come up with brave um, and innovative solutions so we can just get more properties mm-hmm. in Canberra um, so that no ch- no child... Mm-hmm has to live in a car under a bridge mm-hmm. or in an, appro- in a, in an inappropriate yeah, house. Anywhere that's unsafe or, you know. Yes. And this is, I guess, some of the things that have come up recently in the media with the situation in Melbourne in the community housing complexes where there's been the outbreak. Um, you know, you've got people in a lockdown situation from all demographics. And, you know, you've got people who are also going through um, addictions withdrawals within that situation because they no longer have access um, to the substance. And then you've got elderly and you've got single parents, you know, all of this mashed into one area and then forcibly under lockdown. And it's, it's really revealing even where there is housing available when there's people in that situation where they've qualified and received housing, they're still not adequate. Like that's, it's, it's still not adequate. That's yeah. right. And we, we know that in some of those house, uh, housing blocks, there was you know, significant overcrowding in individual apartments, which has uh, led to increased transmission of, of COVID-19. Um, I think there has been some challenge around having appropriate communication that represents the diversity of people living in those apartments. Um, And I think although public housing is different in its form in the ACT, Mm -hmm. uh, we have lots to learn from some of the mistakes that were made in Mm -hmm. Victoria and our partner down there, the Victoria (laughs) Council of Social Services, has been very active on that. So we will certainly be following their advice and recommendations that come out as um, a result of of this really difficult and tragic event and and sharing those with the ACT government. 500 police, albeit for apparent public health reasons, to deal with a health issue, in my view, is is not inclusive and it's not appropriate. And I think there's also, you know, because... Public housing is um, has a lot of misconceptions around it. And um, when I was in the UK at one point, um, a friend I was staying with lived in a um, a public housing, I guess, the area you could say. And I remember walking out of there to get on the tube, and one of the people that were sitting next to me had said, "Oh, that's a very unsafe area." And I said, "I just walked out of there. I just I'm staying there. It's I'm a traveller." finding it people were lovely there you know they wave at you they've got gardens it's normal it's and again because it was somebody from outside of that area that had a perception of that there was just the word 
of um, community or public housing. So there was this stigma attached to it as well. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is that ACT needs to learn from some of the um, maybe poorer decisions that were made in other states about how to handle that public housing. That there's too, it's um, the stigma that goes with that. And, and people saying, you know, they're not in my backyard thing. We don't want this built here or we don't want it um, in our community. So um, how do you deal with that? How do you inform and educate um, communities to be more opening, open and accepting around some of the suggestions that you're making to improve this situation? Yeah, look, I, I think that COVID-19 um, in some ways has enabled us to talk to people that we might not have traditionally engaged with um, because this event has uh, made Australians realise that none of us are really that far <laughs> from losing our jobs um, and from finding ourselves reliant upon government support. Um, I think Australia has been incredibly lucky um, to weather some of the more challenging economic crises that we've mm. seen hit other... Um, 2008, for yeah, example. ...major yes. economies. Um, and I think perhaps that has <coughs> created a complacency mm. amongst uh, many of us, mm. and I include myself in, in, in that, um, that it won't be me. Mm. And, uh, and so I think that a realisation that this could happen to any of us um, should, I hope, um, create some empathy with those to whom it has happened. <laughs> um, life is complex and um, experiences of, of disadvantage, of, um, of abuse, of job loss, of divorce um, can impact anybody and can lead to situations where you may need some support mm -hmm. and I think we should all recognize that and therefore do our bit in making sure that mm. those who do find themselves in that mm. situation have adequate government and community support. Yeah. And having um, lived in North America for a while where the minimum wage is a lot lower and the cost of living is equally high. Um, you know, there is a lot more um, struggle with homelessness there. And I went, there was a wonderful a show a while back that was interviewing people who were dealing with homelessness and asking them about their journeys and how they got to where they were. And most of the viewers were really surprised to find that these people had actually been quite successful in life prior. They'd held some high-level jobs. The um, majority of them had not been addicts. They had not been... Um, in, in many ways responsible for their own demise. They, they were subject to circumstances beyond their control and they, it, it, it equalised people. It made people realise, OK, this person is just like me and because of a series of incidences, primarily um, health-related, where there wasn't health coverage and the expense of you know, bankrupting you for um, having, I think it was two, this one gentleman had two repeat experiences of severe bronchitis and just that bankrupted him and he lost his home and, and eventually lost his family and all of those things because he couldn't afford the cost of health care. Um, and we're not mm -hmm. that far away from some of those mm -hmm. situations mm -hmm. in Australia. I mean, our mm. health care um, system does require mm. quite significant contributions mm -hmm. 
from people mm. who are accessing <laughs> um, services. Uh, and while we do have a public system, often the waiting time is such that people feel obliged to pay for care to get it in a timely manner, particularly um, some issues around mental health yeah. or um, other elective surgery mm. that is quite debilitating mm -hmm. if it's not done in a, in a timely fashion. So I think that's something we need to think about and address. We're also seeing a growing number of older women who are mm. experiencing homelessness. Um, and again, it's sometimes hidden. You were talking about hidden numbers. So they may be mm. staying with uh, relatives or friends or family members, sleeping in their cars. Mm. Um, and there'd be pride around that too. A lot, of, a lot of pride people who women who've not necessarily been in contact with um, community service providers mm -hmm. in the past not feeling that they deserve it mm -hmm. or that they are should be the target of that kind of help um, they would have low levels of superannuation mm -hmm. because they've been caring they may mm -hmm. have faced a health crisis or a divorce mm -hmm. and lost their home um, so we are seeing uh, new cohorts of people facing homelessness um, very young children, young adults as well. And we need to have homelessness services that communicate with those people and meet the needs mm. of those people um, so that um, we can provide safe and appropriate housing mm. for everybody. Uh, and and some, of the, some of the services are just not there mm -hmm. for these emerging mm -hmm. um, cohorts of people experiencing um, homelessness and, and poverty. Yeah, we had um, a show oh, about a month ago now, it was on sustainable housing and we had um, three guests in the studio and one was um, involved in a project in Queenbian called Sun Villages, which they've been trying to get off the ground to create a, a co-housing concept in um, like a community uh, apartment style, but village. And then there was um, a lady who was involved in co-housing Canberra or Co-Canberra, I think they call it, and then another lady who was involved in the tiny house community yes. um, and her business was Live Simply. And one of the things that she had said is in the tiny house community, um, what they're finding is the largest group of buyers of tiny homes um, are older single women. Yeah, It used to be young couples wanting to get back grassroots style, you know, try some, get back to the nature living, but now it's an economic decision it's not a lifestyle decision um, and a lot of the tiny homes originally were built obviously for young healthy fit active people and they had lots of you know ladders and stairs and things and you imagine if you know you're an older person and you're trying to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night you don't want to be hooking up a ladder and climbing down and maybe some people are very fit and active and they can handle that but they started to change the design of tiny homes to accommodate that that new customer base which was primarily older single women so yeah. it's 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 showing up in so many various places it, it is and yeah. and look and i think a lot of these initiatives mm. are are really important and really mm. welcome I mean, the whole basis of atcos is mm. uh grassroots and community-led mm. movements that have um turned into something bigger um but we also need to make sure that our general stock of housing is sufficient and appropriate. And one of the things that ACOS is doing a lot of work on is ensuring that all new house, or trying to ensure, not yet having that much luck, but ensuring that all new housing that's built is built in ways that um, make it disability accessible and accessible to people who are older. Um, because we know that 
Canberra is aging, mm. um, and we need our housing to be appropriate for for that changing change to our um, mm. our demographics. Mm. Uh, and all public housing in the ACT, we're very pleased. New public housing that's mm-hmm. built here is going to be built to a universal standard mm-hmm. that is uh, disability accessible. But we need that applied um, mm-hmm. to all new housing that's developed mm-hmm. uh, in Canberra, indeed in across yeah. Australia. So that's then not forcing people to have to move if some of some of the issues come up as they age. So maybe, you know, if you've got older housing complexes that maybe don't have working elevators or lifts, that's my Americanism that's coming through there, um, you know, that they're not going to have to move now if you've got these houses being built with all those things in mind. They can stay right through for the long term. That's right. You can age in place. Yeah. Um, and mm. also you can have people over who might themselves... Mm. You might not have a disability mm-hmm. um, or a challenge mm-hmm. with mobility, but your guests might. So mm-hmm. we want to have homes where mm. um, that enables them to be accessible, that you can age in place, um, and that if you are a person with a disability, you're not restricted in, in the choice mm-hmm. that you make. Mm-hmm. And most of the, you know, the those universal design standards, frankly, just make for a better designed home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't make the home particularly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just make for good quality building um, mm-hmm. that benefits all of us. And I think there's also the capacity to include some environmental um, building techniques in there as well, that there's um, some of the solar passive ideas and um, the things that they've had in design for some of these homes that are going to be um, looking at maybe reducing energy costs because that's another big issue for people and lower incomes of course is um, you know they're turning their heat off in winter because they can't afford to heat their home so that's right so I mean one of the areas that we're very interested Mm. in is the cost of energy particularly for people who are renting so Mm. if your home is more efficient um, either built to more efficient standards or um, Mm. subsequently there are changes made to your home that can make it more energy efficient that benefits the environment Mm. and it also enables people on lower incomes to uh, afford to heat or cool their house um, in a financially uh, manageable way Um, and also again investing in this kind of thing is it makes economic sense Mm. because these changes to homes um, also create uh, jobs in the economy mm-hmm. they 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 mean um, investment in local businesses mm-hmm. who will be making these changes to homes mm-hmm. or delivering the kinds of products that make mm-hmm. newly built homes more effective and efficient mm-hmm. um, so to us it makes sense um, and again it's one of the key asks that we'll be taking to mm-hmm. all of the parties um, in the election platform And it's also been one of the things that we've asked for the ACT government and the federal government to include in their COVID-19 stimulus package. Um, What a great way to improve Mm -hmm. the environment, Mm -hmm. to help people on low incomes and to invest in the economy Mm -hmm. is to have uh, an initiative that makes changes to existing properties to make them more energy mm-hmm. efficient. Uh, we had uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Sea Change in here and they advocate for things that um, help make properties more affordable um, in energy consumption. And they were doing simple things like for renters recommending um, simple changes that could be made to reduce, for instance, like the cost of your hot water. There was a, a small plastic thing that went on the outside of your hot water tank and it cost $20. And it was demonstrating that it was reducing the cost of people's electricity bills quite considerably yeah. more than $20 you know so yeah um, just things like that to get um you know ideas and education out there um i saw that on i think it was june 5th there was something
happening on the ATCOS website about um, talking to independent competition and a regulatory commission aimed at supporting energy consumers? Yeah, uh, look, we, we get some money. Uh, we get funded by Energy Consumers Australia, which mm-hmm. is the peak body representing consumers of energy. Um, mm-hmm to advocate on behalf of uh, low-income earners in the ACT on issues relating to energy. Um, so one of, the, one of the pieces of work that we've been doing is to try and change government policy so that they require energy providers to be much more transparent and uh, much more proactive in, in helping customers to find better deals mm-hmm. when they're available. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, the ICRC have made recommendations around the transparency of bills and some mm-hmm. of the actions that mm-hmm. energy providers need to do in the ACT to make it easier to switch. And we'll be advocating to the ACT government and all the parties to adopt those recommendations mm-hmm. and, and make it uh, compulsory for energy providers mm-hmm. to... Uh, make it easier mm-hmm. to switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, yeah, it's complex and we don't have time. We yeah. need to make it straightforward yeah. um, for, for people. Mm-hmm. No, that's brilliant. I mean, I had a friend who was um, talked to me about their energy bill and they got a bill and it was something like, I think for the winter period, over $900 and they're one person living in a, a rental that's not well insulated. And then with that bill came a couple of suggestions from the energy company. One was that... Um, First of all, were they eligible for any discounts? So this person had a healthcare card, so they were eligible for that. Then there was some kind of discount that the energy company was offering on its own. And then there was, um, if you pay before this date, you'll get another discount. So the bill went from about $940 down to about $300. Yeah. So that, that to me seemed quite bizarre that an energy company could justify charging that $940 to somebody that didn't pursue the discounts or that wasn't aware of the discounts. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. that's and they're the kinds mm-hmm. of examples of proactivity that we think mm-hmm. energy companies should be doing more of, right? Mm-hmm. It should not be dependent upon the consumer to have to fight for mm-hmm. the discounts that they are entitled mm-hmm. to in the first place. Um, that, that said, um, partic- actually, we, we do work with AgL. If you are struggling with your bill, um, they, they um, will be supportive. Give them a call. You may, as, as that example has shown... And that was an AgL account, actually. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, have the right to significant discounts, particularly if you have a variety of concession cards. And the other organisation that's wonderful is Care Financial Counselling as well, who can give you really good advice if you're struggling around your um, energy bills or indeed any other financial mm-hmm. challenge. We also uh, have one of our members, Vinnie's uh, mm-hmm. and Better Renting, that do some work um, with the ACT government to come into your home uh, and do a survey to see where mm-hmm. you might be able to make some savings mm-hmm. or improve um, your energy efficiency mm-hmm. and, and, and can even give you perhaps um, some uh, small changes mm-hmm. or items that can immediately mm-hmm. have an impact on mm-hmm. your bill or on, on your 
uh, heating or cooling comfort. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of services out there. Go to the ACT government website, to ADL, to Care Financial, to Vinnie's, to Better Renting. Um, because we know that energy stress is a really big issue for many Canberrans. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, the coldest winters and the mm-hmm. hottest summers, mm-hmm. and that comes through in our bills. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we had last year with the bushfire smoke, so many people realised that were in situations where they didn't have air conditioning, but they couldn't open their windows and doors. And, you know, they're measuring temperatures at close to 50 degrees centigrade um, inside their homes. You know, that's apparently past what's considered um, human survival. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I, that time was was so stressful mm. and and difficult for so many mm-hmm. people in Canberra. Um, there's currently the uh, Royal Commission into mm. uh, into the bushfires, and and ACOS, um, did make uh, a brief submission. And one of the things we highlighted was that while Canberra did not have property loss or major property loss, and certainly not loss of life from the bushfires, um, the impact of smoke in Canberra was um, really devastating for many people and and caused um, a lot of financial loss, stress, illness, um, challenges around mental health. And yet Canberra did not receive much additional funding Um, because we were not deemed to be mm-hmm. bushfire affected. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of our community service organisations were heavily impacted because they sent their staff from Canberra to mm-hmm. rightly work mm-hmm. on the south coast. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that our attitude to bushfires will also have to change because it's not just those mm-hmm. areas that are struck by the bushfires, it's also areas such as Canberra that then had mm-hmm. to support mm-hmm. many of the people who came from the South Coast mm-hmm. to come here through our health system and mm-hmm. community service. The people who are eva- evacuees, evacuees and evacuees with animals, I believe, yeah, too. And, and yeah. coming into our health system and community service mm-hmm. system, rightly so, mm-hmm. um, as well as the impact that it had on many Canberrans, mm-hmm. but without additional resources because mm-hmm. we weren't perceived as being Mm -hmm. impacted Mm -hmm. by bushfire in the way that other places were Mm -hmm. so these are things i think we have to think about um as our climate changes Mm -hmm. and um and bushfires unfortunately are going to become longer and more intense yes and we've had some folks on too talking about changing um how we build in bushfire areas too that we're actually looking at um, builds that involve being partly underground yeah. No. Wow. And um, you know, some very great engineering ideas, but we're going to have to look at living a completely different way if people are going to remain in those communities safely. That's right. Mm. And look, I mean, we we all know that mm. the fundamental cause mm. of the mm. the increase or mm. the 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 more intense mm. uh, bushfires and the longer periods mm. of bushfires is climate change. ACOS is very supportive of the transition mm. to zero emissions in the ACT. Um, the one thing that we want is to ensure that the that that the transition to gas, uh, oh sorry, away mm-hmm. from natural gas, um, and that move to zero emissions is done in a way that is uh, progressive, i.e., it doesn't disproportionately mm-hmm. unfairly impact people on lower incomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so whilst we're hugely supportive of that change because the impact of climate change often disproportionately impacts people on lower incomes Um, we don't want to increase inequality as a result of that change and transition so we'll be working very closely with the climate council um, and with 
other members um, to ensure that that transition is done in a just way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I think that comes out of disasters is, um, you know, first of all, communities learn how to do things differently and perhaps how to do them better. Like we've had two pretty significant um, disasters back to back for Australia. It's been the bushfires and then Canberra, of course, the hail, but then immediately COVID. So what has um, ATCOS found that they would like to take and the learning from these things, from moving forward, from struggling through. And of course, COVID was still in the middle of it, but there's, I'm sure, things that you've changed and done differently with your organisation to accommodate that. Yeah, look, uh, it's, it's been an interesting time. I, I was very early in the role when COVID-19 struck. Um, the intensity of the meetings and uh, the... The, the size of the meetings where we all came together to discuss issues because they were so mm-hmm. urgent and we needed a common mm-hmm. voice enabled me to meet people very quickly, to um, get on top of the issues very quickly um, and efficiently. And I think that we've been able to learn a lot from that. So even though we're a small jurisdiction, um, there's no reason why we can't have frequent meetings mm-hmm. via Zoom for example, because it enables me to speak to people more often and find out what they want at cost to be advocating on. Um, previously, I felt that I had to meet everybody in person. There's no need for that. No need for that now. So I think many organisations are looking at more creative ways of engaging with each other that's more effective and efficient and, and, and so on. Um, I think that we were able to develop very effective relationships with the ACT um, public service. It was so important that we got things right, that we were able to speak very frankly to each Mm. other uh, on both sides and and Mm. share information and build a bit of trust Mm -hmm. between us. Um, And I hope that that continues. Mm -hmm. Um, And similarly with with ministers as as well. so I think there's some of the main areas um, have changed our way of working. Um, we even had a couple of instances where we swapped staff for a short mm-hmm. period of time because ACOS needed um, a particular skill. Mm-hmm. So Carers ACT mm-hmm. supported us with a person mm-hmm. who brought that wonderful skill. It was to help us communicate better mm-hmm. with culturally and linguistically diverse mm-hmm. Canberrans, and they've gone back to Carers ACT. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, I think we're now open to creative ways of working. Mm-hmm. No, that's wonderful. It's a lovely saying. It says adversity proves who are our friends. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, um, for people that would like to find out more about ATCOS, uh, maybe if they have an organisation that would like to join ATCOS, um, how would they go about that? How would they get in touch or access support from you or join and become a member great so um you can go to our website that's mm. uh, actcoss.org.au mm. um, and you can learn about atcos uh, learn about our policy positions we'll have our election platform up there very soon uh, which we encourage everyone to read so that you can challenge your local mm-hmm. candidate on some of the issues that we think are important around a just and fair canberra um, We welcome uh, not-for-profit organisations to to join us um, and we also welcome individual members as well and and we really encourage individual members Mm. 
to um, join ACOS uh, because it's it's great to have uh, a broad range of, of, of advocates, particularly mm-hmm. on social justice issues. Um, so that's the best way to, to find us. Wonderful. Do you have any um, upcoming events? Oh, I know that you also offer webinars and training and sometimes, I know with COVID, there's probably not in-person workshops happening anymore, but are there any um, events that people would like to participate, perhaps via Zoom? Yeah, look, so obviously we also have, of course, our Facebook and our Twitter account. You can also sign up for our um, e uh, e-notices as well um, mm-hmm. we I think what we for, for listeners mm-hmm. one of the actions we're very keen for people to get involved in is the raise the rate for good um, campaign mm-hmm. which is uh, also on the ACOS website um, and you can find information about that on the ACOS website probably best to go to the ACOS website but if you want to do something to achieve social justice um, writing to your local MP or senator um, particularly government MPs and senators asking them to raise uh, the rate of job seeker and youth allowance from $40 to a level that is uh, to a, a permanently higher level that provides people with dignity and enough money to feed their kids go to the mm-hmm. doctors put fresh fresh food on the mm-hmm. table um would be such a great mm-hmm. contribution to um so we're talking a living wage yeah a, a, a living wage yeah yes. to take you above poverty yeah. uh, as you the poverty line as you search for your next job yeah. um so that's a great way to become involved with um ACOS and ACOS uh, mm. on an issue that's really important and, you know, actually yesterday I just called um, Senator Sed Sazelja um, and had a chat and saying we would be talking on the radio about this so that if you wanted to advocate and support for this, it would be great. Yeah. So he's our um, local member, would be Sed Sazelja. That's, that's right. our postal code here. So um, apparently next week on July 23rd, the Morrison government's going to decide the fate of job seekers. So that's the official date. So if everybody who would like to participate and advocate for Raise the Rate could contact their local MP or senator before then. Um, there's a couple of websites you can just plug in who your local is and it gives you a direct phone yep. line that you can call them up. And yes. I think their PAs are quite overwhelmed right now, but uh, yeah, the, more, we, the more people do it, the better. That's great. And you can I also can write oh. to the Treasurer Frydenberg and also Senator Anne Rushton, who's the Minister for Social Services. So ACOS has all the information on that. And uh, if we get a few people doing that after listening to this, I'd be super happy and super grateful. Mm. And if that's the one thing that comes out of this show and having you here, that would be fantastic. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I just wanted to give you one last little thing you could add in there. Do you have anything on the Canberra bucket list? And you've been here for a while, but is there anything you'd still like to do um, that you haven't had a chance to explore in Canberra yet? Gosh, look, I wish I could spend more time in the museums. Um, My favourite museum is the Museum of Democracy at Old Parliament Mm -hmm. House. Um, I'm a little bit busy and uh, uh, perhaps I'm not as motivated at the weekends as I I should be. So I think once um, COVID-19 has finished, uh, I'm going to, partly to support them, but also because it's such a great resource that we Mm -hmm. don't make use of. Uh, that I don't make use of appropriately, that's going to be a bit of a, a, a mission for me to, to go there regularly and to get to know some of the art and some of the stories. Wonderful. And I believe um, the Campus Writers Festival is um, happening again shortly. Uh, some events will be going to Zoom, but there will be live events and they've got some lovely events, evening events coming up at the Museum of Australian Democracy So, ah, okay, so um, on a Saturday this. evening. And I think it's in that lovely lounge that they have. So um, and opportunities to wonder about. So, yeah, no, I will. 
we'll, uh, I'll be looking out for those. Well, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Um, that was Dr. Emma Campbell, who's the CEO of ATCOS ACT, Council of Social Service. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.